back to Drive Performance. I'm your host, Tom Shea, the co-founder of Agile Media Group, joined by two awesome guests today, Justin Seidenfeld and Mike DeSantis of Doris Dev. Doris Dev is a full-stack consumer product design, development, and supply chain management company with offices in New York City and Hong Kong. As New York Magazine puts it best, Doris Dev is the agency behind most of the D2C companies that you love, a team of engineers and manufacturing specialists that can bring your consumer product idea to market. Don't believe me, Doris Dev is behind Great Jones, by Humankind, Lalo, Lofty, Gravity Blankets, Soft Services, Pattern Brands, Scrology, Thorn, and I, I could honestly just go on forever here. And in addition to the work that Doris Dev takes on, they've also leveraged their expertise to incubate and launch proprietary products, brands, and technology like Canopy and Factor Quality. Gentlemen, welcome to Driving Performance. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, so um, I start the show by asking the same question of every guest, because there's going to be a lot of audio-only listeners. How would you describe uh, the madness that is uh, this set design right now? <laughs> we are in a fishbowl <laughs> on the bustling streets of New York City, um, on display for everybody that's walking by, <laughs> which is literally everybody. Yeah. Every, every, every type of character has walked by in the last yeah. few minutes uh, to say hi. Yeah, my favorite, um, the favorite quip we got was the Pope Mobile. That's a, that's a pretty good yeah, one. That's, that's a good one. Is this bullet, yeah. uh, bulletproof? Uh, we're not going to, I don't want to find out, to be honest. <laughs> Justin, um, you're obviously one of the co-founders. Mike, you've been pretty involved with Doorstep from the get-go. Uh, really just wanted to start with the question of how do you guys know each other? What's the story there? How did you guys meet? So let's start there. Yeah, um, I started my career in D2C in 2016 at a company called Raiden. Um, Justin was already there, had already stood up the supply chain. I came on as a CX associate. Um, pretty quickly started working with Justin and some of the core members of the Doors team on the Hong Kong side of things to help them manage the supply chain. Um, yeah, and then Justin uh, went off to get the ball rolling with Doris and I stayed on board on the Raiden side of things, continuing to operate that supply chain for a while. Um, and uh, 2019, we'd always stayed in touch, but 2019 we reconnected and Justin was like, I've got 10 grand, I need you to help me build a brand, <laughs> make a name, and get a strategy deck for this cool new company we want to launch, yeah. um, which is now Canopy. Awesome. Yeah. I want to start by just laying the groundwork of what you can expect in this show. So obviously we're in a truck, um, so there's going to be a few different stops along our route today. <sighs> Stop one is going to be origin story, so outside of how you guys have met, outside of how you guys have met each other, um, you know, what were all the inflection points and moments throughout your career? Uh, that got you to Doris Dev in, in that launch. Stop two is gonna be um, just questions posed to both of you. There's a little bit of a detour as you guys are both from Doris Dev where um, we usually do brand specific questions and then brand intersection questions. So we're gonna just dive right into the Q&A afterwards. And then stop four is a segment we call the hot box. Uh, it'll be a fun tongue in cheek game modeled off the hot seat. <laughs> and then stop five will be the end of our out the, and, and we'll sit there and um, wrap it up. So I wanted to quickly start, and Justin, I'll have you respond first, really just, you know, deep dive into <clears throat> all the cool experiences you have had. I know, um, I want to go pre-Quirky, but th there's a lot of interesting things you learned at Quirky as well that I think uh, were important in the formulation of Doorstep. So why don't we start from the beginning? Cool. Yeah. Um, my background, I actually started uh, right out of college, my first job out of college was teaching high school math okay. at a uh, inner city charter school in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. Uh, and the reason I ended up doing that was actually because I wanted, I went to school in the Northeast, I grew up in the Northeast, I wanted to get out of the Northeast, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, so that seemed like a really good first step. I tried that too, and look at where I am, yeah. <laughs> Los Angeles first. <laughs> 
Well, so you didn't stay in LA. I didn't stay in Memphis. Um, it's a great city, but unfortunately, there was a lot of FOMO not being in New York. Right. Um, so I ended up moving back to New York. Got really excited about kind of the tech venture scene that was and startup scene that was happening in New York. Um, and um, started reading about this company um, in 2012 called Corky, which was getting a lot of press. Um, it raised a bunch of money. It was a really interesting idea. Essentially, they were building a community and platform to crowdsource ideas. Okay. And then the best ideas would bubble up to the top through their internal kind of platform and process. And then we at Quirky led all of the work to bring those ideas to market as consumer goods. Got it. So it was like almost like an internal like Republic Kickstarter exactly. type model. Yeah. And it, it launched the same time as Kickstarter. Okay. Um, and and at the time there were you know the way that we framed it is that there were people that had great ideas and they would either quit their day jobs to go pursue those ideas and that was the Kickstarter route. Right. But if you didn't want to quit your day job, then you could take the quirky route, which was submit your idea and you would get paid out as an inventor, but you didn't have to quit your day job to to launch it. Interesting. So would they be involved in the business? Uh, like at a very high level, they okay. were the inventor of the idea, but actually it was a very collaborative process where we leveraged the community, uh, which was an, at, by the end of it, a million plus people around wow. the world um, to help basically lead a lot of the design and development decisions. And then we led the work internally to design, engineer, manufacture, set up the supply chain and operational infrastructure for distribution. Got it. Um, so they were always the face. Their face was plastered on the back of the packaging, but we actually did all of the heavy lifting to bring the product to market. Got it. And, and how many, um, talk, talk to us about the quirky story. Uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible. Um, the founder, also a New York native, um, had launched a consumer product business called Mophie. Okay. Um, yep. Actually, right out of college, uh, or like while they, he was in the college. case charger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they're, I think their claim to fame, their biggest product was the the, the phone charging case. Right. Um, which is still around. They yeah, were the yeah. first kind of innovator on that idea, um, and the founder came up with that idea while he was in college. Left college to pursue what ultimately became Mophie. Got it. Um, and the idea for Quirky actually came about because I think he was at some convention, maybe it was the Apple convention, um, and their idea to figure out new products for Mophie was to take ideas from people that were walking the convention. So at that convention, um, they actually had ideas submitted, and there they would design them and kind of lead the work. Okay, um, And I think that was the spark for what ultimately became Quirky, which was helping to kind of you know, get ideas from the crowd and then lead the, lead the work to bring them to yeah. life. And so, how long was um, how long was Quirky around? Did it take me through like um, you know, there's peaks, valleys along the way. Yeah, Quirky was around. Had a good run for a little over five years, um, and uh, and its heyday was a darling of venture capital because uh, it kind of brought a lot of things um, that were popular at the time into the fold, which was crowdsourcing, leveraging a technology platform, building out a community, and then consumer goods, kind of pre D to C space, but all of that kind of came into the, you know, into one package, which which was quirky. Um, but that also meant that there were a lot of moving parts right. for the business. Um, so it was really complicated. Um, and so for about five years, it kind of scaled um, as a consumer goods company. It, it, I don't know, we probably developed and launched uh, a few hundred products. Um, we had really great, amazing retail partnerships with um, stores like Home Depot and Target yeah. and, and uh, Best Buy, 
Um, and so we were actually bringing product to market through those distribution channels and, and con controlled the process end to end. Yeah. Um, but in Control the process end to end. Yeah, and unfortunately in 2015, um, it spiraled into bankruptcy really quickly. Um, and I was there, I was at Quirky for about uh, a little over four and a half years. Yeah. Um, and was lucky in that I got to wear a lot of hats right. uh, while at the business. So I was probably around the 15th employee um, and started, I think my title was operations, superstar, rock star, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Something super PBC nebulous. Yeah, roles exactly. where you're yeah. just like. Yeah, that, and that probably was a flag early days. Um, <laughs> but um, ended up basically put, you know, having the opportunity to wear a lot of hats and learn so much from the team, from the founder, who's like this incredible creative mind. Right. Um, and yeah, it was just an amazing experience. I moved from operations to product, ultimately moved out to Asia to set up the manufacturing and sourcing office. Yeah, and so um, what's the story on that move to Asia? Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. So um, <laughs> at the time we were working, we had a really big partnership with GE. Okay. Um, so they actually put money into the business as an investor, but we were doing a co-branded line of products, of, of connected hardware products with GE. Okay. Um, and we were working really closely with them and the team that we were working with was based in Korea and in China. And so we were working closely with them. I was actually at the time the product manager for that line of connected um, home products. And um, our CEO and founder um, wanted to establish uh, footing in Asia to help basically build out manufacturing and, and sourcing. Um, and hired somebody who was essentially going to be the GM of the office and build that out. Right. Um, and we were, we had a big meeting with the GE team that was going to be happening in this Hong Kong office. Right. Leading up to that, um, this GM realized that he this was not the right fit for him. And he was like this weather se weathered, seasoned um, manufacturing yeah, yeah, yeah. and sourcing guy from Target. Spent ten plus years doing sourcing. Um, and the short of it is he ended up deciding to leave and didn't show up for work the next day. Um, so this was the Thursday. That night, um, Ben, our founder CEO, essentially asked me to go to Hong Kong um, and- like make On a trip or? So originally the ask was, hey, just go out there for three months. Which is like a big ask. Which is a big itself. ask. <clears throat> Um, and just kind of get your footing and figure out how we're going to basically resource somebody who's going to lead the right, effort right. to establish our manufacturing. We'll on the back end. Yeah, exactly. Um, the kicker was I had to be there on Monday. So <laughs> I basically had 72 hours. And how old are you at this point? I was 25. Okay. Um, and I had been at Quirky for about three years. Um, I had, again, worn a lot of hats. So operations, products, like got, got a good feel for the business. I was working really closely with the GE team, have established a really good rapport with them. Um, and so I think the idea was, hey, Justin, go out for three months, figure out how we're gonna like resource this thing and get our footing there. And then you'll come back and you'll continue to be the product manager for this GE line. Yeah. Um, what ended up happening is I left on that Sunday to be in the office for this meeting with GE on that Monday, uh, and that three months turned into six months, turned into a year, turned into two years. Yeah, um, and it was an incredible experience. So awesome. I, I basically, you know, helped build uh, and scale this office of about 50 people in Hong Kong. Um, I spent. 
probably are on average three days a week running around Asia, predominantly China, okay. finding factory partners. And where is that, like Shenzhen or like all, literally all over? All over. So, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of our factory partners were based in southern China, so like okay. uh, essentially Guangdong province. Okay. Um, you but, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, I barely speak English. There you uh, go. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was an incredible experience. Like getting thrown in the deep end. Right. Had to um, negotiate uh, all these deals with different factory partners for all of the consumer products we were building at the time, which was just really an incredible experience. Yeah. Um, and, I, and at the time, I was actually thinking about going to business school. Right. Because uh, I thought that that's what you do in, in, right, you know, right, right. in the trajectory of your career. But instead, I spent two years living in Hong Kong, traveling, meeting incredible yeah. people, learning everything on the fly. And that was kind of my, my business, business school, school experience. Yeah. I also met my, my wife out there. Oh, too. awesome. Yeah. So, oh, what a cool story. Yeah, re really, uh, really positive experience nice. I recommend. Yeah, I lived in Shanghai for a little bit and oh, wow. I mean I, my base regret is not like trying to live out there for like post grad for a yeah. couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's gonna get harder and harder to get back. Oh yeah. What what were you doing? I was just studying abroad. Oh, yeah, cool. so I was there for like six months internet yeah. SOS ventures. Oh nice. There oh that's awesome. Spot. That's yeah. a cool experience. Yeah. So you mean to tell me that I can integrate my shop with you in less than a minute. You store all my inventory across your 50 plus fulfillment centers in the US, Canada, UK, Europe, and Australia, and then fulfill all of my orders globally with over a 99% order accuracy rate. That's right. We do that for over 7,000 brands today. And you can do that for all my D2C, B2B, and Amazon orders? Yep. And when my next TikTok video goes viral or during the holiday rush, you can grow with me forever? Yes, again. Dang, that's the ship, Bob. Check out ShipBob at ShipBob.com to unlock your fulfillment provider that acts as your personal chief supply chain officer. All right, turn it over to you. Let's hear the, Mike, let's hear your origin story all the way up to uh, doorstep. Sure. Um, so went to school at Northeastern right down the street from you that's right. in Boston. Um, thought I wanted to get into a career in finance. Um, was, also, also like me. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, was a lot really of like secondhand peer pressure because everyone was studying finance. Of course, it's what you do, right? right. Um, yeah, having no idea what that really involved or anything like that. Um, was really drawn to like the wealth management space because of the entrepreneurial nature of it. You build your own book of business. Right. Um, Got in there, realized pretty much six months in that it's just a function of time in the system, and it's like the yeah. only way to move up is to uh, pay with years of your life. Right, outlast others. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, realized pretty quickly that the student tie life was not for me. I actually, uh, Raiden was having a pop-up at the current, currently the Amazon store in Raiden, Soho. Describe Raiden for people. Yeah, for sure. So Raiden is a, was a um, luggage <laughs> company. Um, yeah, RIP Raiden. Um, Pour one out. Yeah. yeah. Raiden in a way launched around the same time. Okay. I, I uh, personally refer to it as the great luggage wars of 2016. Yeah, that sounds um, right. I, uh was on my way to some sort of event in a suit and tie, coming back from work and wandered into the Raiden pop-up and asked around, like, does somebody in this pop-up work at actual Raiden? And it <laughs> wasn't just a, and a, you know, a store associate. Right. Um, met the chief strategy officer of Raiden at the time, um, started chatting. My interview process was very informal, which basically involved a bunch of coffee walks and right. uh, attending the launch party. Um, <laughs> Started there about two weeks later. So and, and so, take us through that just like that process a little bit because like, what was? Did you go into a finance role for them? Um, no, not at all. I was 
fully ready to just like hang up my finance cleats and do whatever job I possibly could. I wanted to get into the D2C world. Right. Um, and so I took a job as a CX associate, so in Zendesk at the time, every day, yeah, yeah, all yeah. day. And, um, and before you get deeper, like yeah. why why D2C? Was it just like the, the era that we were in at that it, time? It was certainly the era, right? right? Like every, I had friends at Casper and I had friends at Warby and I was like, oh, right. they're all living such cool lives and they do such cool work. Um, Everybody's talking about these brands. There's obviously a, a cool opportunity yeah, here. In the water. And my my parents both work for the airlines, so I was like, oh, Raiden suitcases. Like this is yeah. very near and dear. Oh, to my heart. all right, all right. Um, yeah, so I was like, all right, cool. I love travel, and like travel meets product meets cool new D 2 C brand. Um, and yeah, so I started pretty pretty shortly after uh, I got kicked off at Raiden. It was running, helping run the CX team, helped run the pop-up. It was supposed to be like a two-week-long thing, and it ended up being like an eight-month-long experience oh, wow. there. So we actually turned it into a retail location. And where is this geographically at the time? Um, in Soho, where the Amazon store is right now, on Spring Street. Okay, um, got it. So it was a gigantic location. We had built yeah. out a, a coliseum of suitcases. Museum. Which, yeah, it was kind of an insane situation. That's pretty sick. We <laughs> had all these, like, the chairs that you have in terminals of, of airports that were set up as, like, seating inside of there. It was really, it was honestly a really, really cool space um, but I basically lived out of that pop-up seven days a week um, which was a, a fun experience um, yeah, wow. and then yeah started uh, dipping my toe into the product and supply chain side of things um, working directly with the team in Hong Kong that Justin had stood up back in the quirky days and so is um, Raiden the intersection of quirky and Raiden was kind of post quirky okay and kind of the the inspo for starting Doris Dev which was the realization that we could essentially fractionalize the work that we did around new product introduction and supply chain management okay. as a service for a bunch of these DTC brands. I had no idea that that was happening at the time. I just joined and then Justin leave, left like six months later and I was like, oh no, what's, what's <laughs> happening here? And then I realized, now, now that I have the hindsight that yeah. I do, I'm like, oh okay, this made perfect sense. Like We can templatize this and help right. other founders get from zero to one on this kind of black box. Yeah. And so did it go right into Quirky, and then did you guys overlap at all? It went from, yeah, right. No, for, uh, for you, Mike. Oh, for me, I, yeah, so we overlapped at Raiden for probably six six months okay. um, full-time work, because I think yeah, you Mike, left in... Mike's hair was much shorter. Mike's hair was much shorter at the time, yeah, high and tight. We'll, uh, we'll have to p cut to uh, a picture of <laughs> Yeah, a picture of me, yeah. Mike 1.0. Yeah, my LinkedIn my LinkedIn photo still has me with shorter yeah, hair. Yeah, so. mine I'm 24 so, wearing so glasses, fierce. so I look... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, and then um, once Justin left, I kind of stepped into kind of that, that product role, like working directly with the Hong Kong team, placing purchase orders, uh, moving the freight, um, overseeing our, our 3PL, our warehouse that we were working with at the time for Raiden. Um, and yeah, I stayed on board there for a while, hired in a, a bunch of people to help manage CX, um, and then left in late 2017 to kind of go freelance. Um, ended up working um, with a couple of the guys that used to be at Raiden. Um, we helped operationalize like a rug startup, like two legacy rug families from Long Island who wanted to Dude, have of, their own DTC presence. A lot of rug people on Long Island. And they're all like legacy businesses, right? There's no actual right. D2C storefront. They all sell totally. through third parties. They wanted to set something up, so we did that. Um, and then joined a, a branding agency called High Tide for, okay. for a little yeah, over okay. a year. Um, so got to work with a ton of really cool brands. Actually, some brands that 
we now work with at Doorstep, which is funny because oh, I've like followed them along the oh, journey. Wow. Who's that? Oh, Fable, Fable Pets? Yeah, yeah, Fable in particular. Cool. Um, and then, yeah, I, I mentioned it a little, a little bit ago, but 2019, Justin and I reconnected. He needed some help getting a brand off the ground, which is now Canopy. At the time, it, was, it became named Haiku uh, temporarily. Um, and then, yeah, Justin and I flirted for about six months before I came on full time. <laughs> there you um, go. You're hard to court. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then came on to help really like operationalize and stand up Canopy, setting up the marketing funnel, e-com, CX, um, helping on the ops and supply chain side of things, and managing a couple uh, clients for Doris. And yeah, now uh, you know the Canopy team's fully up and running. We've backfilled yeah. my, I was the fractional head of CX and growth and e-com, and now we've got people who actually do that full time and are <laughs> experts in it. Um, so yeah, I mean, similar to Justin, just got to do a lot of different things. Got to have yeah. my hands in a lot of different pots, so really interesting. Jack of all trades, master yeah. of none, truly. Um, <laughs> and where do you sit now? Where I sit now. Now I'm the director of business operations at Doorstev. Okay. Um, so functionally, like describe. The functionally, I help lead new business development. Okay. Um, I help lead projects end to end. So a client comes in the Doorstev system up front. I'm helping scope out the project, getting everything set up, teeing up kind of all the resourcing that uh, that project is going to need end to end on the Doris side of things. And then um, as someone moves through the Doris system from industrial design into engineering, sourcing, supply chain setup, um, I am the through line through all of that, right? Okay. Some people are going to come onto the project, they're going to fall off once, you know, that scope of work, their expertise is no longer needed. Um, but I'm going to be there end to end kind of managing that client relationship, making sure that everything's resourced appropriately. Um, yeah, helping... I mean, definitely helping you know experienced businesses that have product in market launch you know new product, but also helping really excited entrepreneurs get their business off the ground, which is an awesome experience. Yeah, it's a cool spot yeah. to be in. Yeah. And before, so the last question I have on the intro, I just want to talk about your co-founder, um, sort of the origin story there. And correct me if I'm wrong, were you guys at Quirky together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. so Co-founder and partner at Doris is Lucas Lappi. Um, he's our head of product at Doris. He was an engineering intern in Quirky's New York office. So we actually overlapped um, okay. at Quirky, but we were never in the same office. So okay. I was in Hong Kong at the time. He was in New York. Um, the way he tells the story is he really wanted to get out to Asia to spend time at, at the factory. So would always kind of like suck up to me to yeah, try and yeah, get a yeah. trip in. Um, unfortunately, that never played out, but after Quirky kind of um, went sideways, um, I helped uh, facilitate him getting a job with another D2C brand, which was an electric toothbrush brand called Gobi at the time, okay. so he led product for that business. And then what ended up happening is for, for Doris, I was working on the connected luggage brand, Raiden, he was at the electric toothbrush brand, and we both realized that there was an opportunity to fractionalize this product and supply work. So yeah. we, joined forces to basically start and scale Doris. Cool. Um, and since then, he's been leading product. So he goes deep on the technical side, um, and I've been kind of leading business operations outside of product. Got it. Um, and where's he? He's in... Uh, he's, he's a snowbird. He's a, yeah, he's, a, he's nomadic. So he splits his time. I was going to say, I was like, did you guys trade places? Yeah, <laughs> he, he, did he get that trip in finally? Yeah, yeah. He's, <laughs> oh, so he spent, he actually lived in Hong Kong also for two years. All right. But after I moved back to the States. Got it. Um, okay. So he was always, I guess, a little bit, just one step behind me in right. that regard. Um, and now he's between New York and LA. And, yeah. um, 
And he's, he's actually, uh, the idea for Canopy came about because he was very interested in the humidifier space. Yeah. And the muse for Canopy was actually his girlfriend who okay. was using a humidifier as a beauty hack. Yeah. That's a his girlfriend thing. was yeah. using a... Yeah. yeah. So, and, and the muse for Canopy was actually his girlfriend, um, who at the time was using a humidifier as a beauty hack for her skin. Right. And had the weekly ritual of breaking out vinegar and Q-tips to clean it out every Sunday. Yeah, it's, uh, it, we're going to dive deep yeah. into all, all of the issues with um, the incumbency there. But, okay, so I want um, to get to stop to here, which is going to be really the meat of the, the show. And it's uh, a lot of questions that I personally had, I'm sure the audience had, to sort of demystify a lot of what Doris Dev does. I think, you know, we've had a lot of brands on here, Doris Dev behind some of them, <laughs> honestly. Um, but what you guys do is, I think, extremely and fundamentally unique relative to this community and this ecosystem. So there's a lot that I want to unpack. And I want to start with just trying to first explain what a co-packer is and then sort of explain the role of Doris Dev and how it's different than a co-packer because I think a lot of people were talking about that is sort of how they got started. Okay. Yeah, I think, so in, in durable products, the typical process for bringing a new product to market, um, there's a few kind of service partners or players or basically resources that you would tap into to bring your concept to life. Um, the first is essentially a design resource. So somebody who's gonna take the idea and pen to paper, essentially design what the thing looks like, how you interact with it, what it feels like, um, and, and create all the technical assets that you can actually make the thing uh, at scale. Um, the other partner or resource that a lot of people work with are essentially factories or trading companies, which okay. is finding the contract manufacturer that's going to produce the product at scale. Um, and typically, historically, that's been obviously different touch points different people or resources that you tap into. Um, and so the idea for Doris was essentially to bring all of that under one roof um, with kind of the understanding that a lot of the work that happens um, can be fractionalized. You don't need to basically hire all of those resources to bring onto your overhead all at once. You can fractionalize them and still get the high level of you know, quality and output that you need from, from that process. Um, and so for Doris, what we do is we've, we've brought on industrial design muscle and uh, product engineering muscle across mechanical, electrical, and firmware engineering. And then through our Hong Kong office, we've established a ton of contract manufacturer relationships ac across all different categories. Um, and we've got a, an incredible sourcing and manufacturing team that includes product engineering in Hong Kong that is basically um, focused on engineering um, as it relates to manufacturing. Um, and we lead, can lead all of the work from design, engineering, design, engineering, sourcing, manufacturing within kind of that under one roof. Yeah. Um, and so the benefit there is we end up uh, controlling the process end to end. We're responsible for taking the idea, designing it, and getting it across the finish line. Right. So we maintain the fidelity or the intent of the original design um, kind of vision. Right. Um, whereas you know, with other resourcing partners, that baton that gets handed off might lose some of that fidelity. Right. Um, and then the other, obviously, benefit is we have a ton of relationships on the manufacturing side that we can tap into. Um, so we get economy of scale, efficiencies, totally. you know, of leveraging that, that network, 
um, better pricing, opening doors to manufacturing partners that wouldn't necessarily be interested in working with startups right? because we're bringing a ton of volume. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's just a ton of value of having all of that under one roof. Yeah, absolutely. And so take me through early day door stuff because I think we talked a lot about how you each of you got here. But I think, you know, you guys didn't raise money, obviously had a lot of unique experiences and like knew the game quite well from, from quirky and some of your past experiences. But like, how did you, like who took those early bets on you guys? And I, I think the gravity story is a really interesting one. I don't know yeah. where that falls in the lineage, but how do you establish yourself, especially when like, you know, quirky, quirky had a, a fall from grace, right? So, yeah. so how did you sort of position in the market? Who were those people who took an early bet on you? Over 7,000 customers like Pet Lab, Chamberlain Coffee, Hero Cosmetics, Spikeball, Dossier, TB12, Pit Viper, 100 Thieves. Tens of millions of packages shipped every year. 50 plus fulfillment centers across the US, Canada, UK, Europe, and Australia. An app store with 50 plus integrations like Shopify, Amazon, NetSuite, and many more. Managed inventory distribution, D2C and B2B fulfillment capabilities. 99.96% of order shipping on time. 99.95% order accuracy rate. Yep, we're talking about ShipBob again. We know picking a fulfillment partner or 3PL is not easy. And equally importantly, we know you never want to have to move or pick another one. That's why we partnered with ShipBob. From zero to 100 million in sales, ShipBob has you covered. Yeah, for sure. So f- firstly, the, the actual where we are now as a company for Doris has been an evolution from the early days, from the origin. Right. Um, so we started with kind of what we had access and a network to, which was really on the sourcing and manufacturing side. Right. And then over the last five years, that the organization at Doris has evolved, where we've gone really upstream and downstream from that point. So we didn't start out with having industrial design or really deep product engineering expertise on staff, but over the last five years, we've really built that out. Um, and so now it's very robust. And part of the kind of the idea was we would be able to control that process end to end, um, but that's not where we started. Right. Um, and w- where we started was essentially being able to tap into our network and our expertise on the supply chain and manufacturing front. Right. Um, because um, uh, you know I had lived in Hong Kong, I had all these relationships uh, in predominantly China. I worked with an incredible group of people in Hong Kong from the quirky days that. I, I was lucky enough to bring over to Raiden, and then also we're part of the kind of the founding story for for Doris as well. Um, and so the short of it was we had a network and the expertise, and that w- I went out and basically um, found initial uh, clients that needed that help. Um, and we didn't raise any money out of the gate, but was lucky to really start out of the gate with three clients um, that helped basically get the snowball, that momentum going yeah. for what ultimately became Doris. How'd yeah. you find them? Um, and who so, were they? Yeah, so um, interestingly enough, they um, the very first three clients from uh, out of the gate um, ended up also going sideways. Yeah. So one of them was Raiden. Um, so that was, you know, I, I left Raiden kind of as a full-time product and supply chain lead to start Doris. Um, and Raiden was one of our first, was our first client. So had that commitment out of the gate. Um, and then I had two other um, companies. One was a media company and one was actually a, a, a VC fund that wanted to incubate products. Um, both of those were two 
were two other clients that we started with, but actually, as we got going with Doris, within the first really sixty to ninety days, they kind of fell 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 right off the wayside. Throwing a hail mary to you. Yeah, but but in that process, ended up connecting with some folks that were really um, gung ho about launching new product businesses. Um, that ended up being very successful. So separately, right. they were um, Lalo, the founders of Lalo, uh, Michael and Greg, who actually at the time had day jobs, right. um, and met with them at a coffee shop in New York and started kind of the initial courting process of, you know, as they were, as they were figuring out their idea to what ultimately became Lalo, um, started kind of helping them out um, to think through how to set up product. Yeah. Um, and then the other was Great Jones. So similarly, the two founders of Great, Great Jones, Jones. Great one. Yeah, had, um, had day jobs, also met with them the first time in a coffee shop in New York. And similarly, you know, it was a conversation about how do you, you know, start a product business? How do you uh, set up a supply chain for, for what was their idea in, in cookware? And um, so it was very lucky in that both of those um, introductions um, were, you know, very early stage conversations, pre-revenue, before even the businesses themselves had been established, but started those relationships and the rapport with those founders really early. So got got involved early days. Yeah. Um, and then another one was um, what ultimately became uh, Gravity Blankets. Um, so got connected to another media company called Futurism that had incubated this idea of launching a consumer product uh, brand, which was Gravity. Um, they had launched a Kickstarter, they had an inventor, the guy who came up with the idea for the weighted blanket and kind of commercializing and humanizing it. Right. Um, and they had launched a Kickstarter, which did incredibly well. I think it did like $5 million, was one of the top grossing uh, Kickstarters of all time. Um, and coming, crazy. It, which was pretty wild. <laughs> and I connected with them because out of that experience, as they were, they had just kicked off the Kickstarter, um, they were looking for help to figure out how to set up their supply chain. Right. They had, um, you know, prototyped the product, and they were working with um, a trading company, but really wanted to go deep on setting up a supply chain, kind of from the ground up, um, and didn't have any experience in product or manufacturing. And so, was very lucky in that I got involved. You know, I, I connected with the founder. Um, of the business and basically jumped in head first. Uh, I was really excited about what they were building, how they were building it. They were using their audience at Futurism to really validate the product idea and then leveraging that audience to make decisions. So it right. felt very similar to what we were doing at Quirky right. um, and got really, really excited about what they were working on. Um, so kind of went, in, went, went all in on, on Gravity. Yeah. Um, and we got involved early days to not only set up their supply chain, but then helped um, ideate on new product concepts. So, you know, an extension of their uh, weighted blanket was um, this weighted eye mask that we're actually listed as the, the, the inventors of. You, you guys are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the, the Doris team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so really pushed kind of expanding the product family beyond just the weighted blanket across, you know, uh, not just colorways and styles, but, you know, uh, new product lines. Um, set up a really robust supply chain that, that was able to support the incredible demand that they saw out of the gate. Um, and then leaned in even further, like as that business was scaling, we were leaning in to help support like inventory planning and getting getting involved in distribution conversations yeah. with retail partners. A little, and, of, a little bit of foreshadowing for the future of the earth. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it was an incredible, I mean, very lucky and fortunate to kind of um, 
get that experience. Um, but on the flip side, that kind of laid the groundwork for really seeing you know, all of the different um, touch points uh, and surface area that DoorsDev could kind of lean in to help support a new product business get off the ground. Yeah, awesome. Um, and that was, yeah. Cool. Um, I, something I, I was thinking about was, you know, those are all awesome stories and it seems like you were an integral part of a lot of those brands and it seems, you know, that you primarily were getting involved at the early stages. I'm curious, could you sort of like unpack and demystify how those contract works? And I don't mean from like a, a price point perspective because I think that's probably such like a case-by-case -case custom uh, response. But um, like, you know, Where's the start and end of what Doris Dev does with their partners? It's a really good question. Um, that has been refined over time. Yeah, I think I think early days, and this is probably true for any kind of service business just getting their sea legs. Early days of Doris, we were kind of down to try anything. Right. Um, where we started was, hey, we'll help you know design, engineer, and set up your supply chain. But we were open to getting involved on, you know, uh, inventory planning or retail distribution support or wherever we could kind of get our, our our beaks wet. Um, and over the last five years, that's been kind of more refined to really focusing on two areas, which are designing new products, new ideas from essentially concept through those technical blueprints, right? Um, and then setting up a robust supply chain for for scale. Um, and that, you know, that's been kind of this iterative evolution um, since since the early days of Doris. Um, and I think that was one of the learnings, which was, hey, let's cast a really wide net initially so that we can engage new clients uh, and as many as we can learn from the process. And then as we learned kind of what worked and where we were really unlocking a ton of value, we honed in on on what our kind of value proposition was as a, as a service partner. Yeah, awesome. And, and so, you know, you're behind a lot of awesome brands that, that we um, talked through at the start of the episode. One thing that I was curious about is just how, how do you think about progress versus perfection? And, you know, obviously as a founder, I think something you hear a lot of, about is just like sh ship it, you know, mm -hmm. like try to get it out there, start learning things. Whereas, and, and we're definitely going to talk about Kennedy, but kind of feels like a year plus R&D design project. And so I'm curious, when you're working with folks, how do you think about those elements? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like a constant tension between timeline and budget. And like, particularly if you're a pre-revenue business, you, you want to get your product into market, see if there's even product market fit. Right. right. There's always opportunity to make things better. Or GM in Hong Kong actually... Uh, likes to say, make it good now, make it better later. Right. Um, right. Like, there's always opportunity for v1.1 or v2 v of your of your product as you start to kind of, you know, gain traction in the market and figure out what your customer base likes and doesn't like about your product. Figure out what existing pain points are. There's no way to solve for every possible variable that's going to present itself in product. Right. So I think it's a function of move quickly, get product to market. I think that's what Doris is really good at. We're very good at moving quickly and getting product to market as, as fast as we possibly can. And what, just like ballpark on timelines, I know that's such a hard thing to answer, but like, yeah. you talking, oh, what's the quickest, I guess? If we're talking like nothing, nothing super, like something very simple, we're putting a logo on something off the shelf, right. four or five months maybe. Okay. Um, but if we're talking about something net new, designing something from the ground up, 
Um, I would say that you know six to ten months is yeah. kind of the range depending on complexity. Obviously, that can go way, 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 way longer. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's probably just helpful context for people who are thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, like, Don't know what's involved with all this yeah. stuff. Yeah, no, it's it's it can it can spiral very quickly. But you know, starting point always like our early conversations are about level setting expectations and yeah, the the development, the design, development, supply kind of setup process can be will typically be like up to a year long. Yeah, um, got if, it. Especially if you're bringing something truly new into the world. It takes time to design it, validate it, find the right manufacturing partner, validate all of the work on the back end, and then, um, yeah, it's it's like typically up to a year. Yeah. yeah, the process is very iterative too, right? Like you're constantly bringing new challenges to the fold as you start to validate, right? You're like right. you're testing assumptions. You're like, oh, this actually didn't work the way that we assumed it would. We need to make modifications to get it to where it needs to be. Um, so it's a process. I think the other thing that's really interesting about it, it particularly coming from building brand and building websites, is those work streams can be sped up by throwing more bodies at a problem, right? You can move more quickly mm, if, you, right. if you can pull in more resources. The process of setting up a supply chain, there's no shortcuts. Right. There's no like, oh, let's get to hire three more devs and have them you know, work around work the clock to get this done. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so I think that's another big piece of the puzzle, which can be very can be very frustrating for, for some people, right? It's like, well, wait, why can't we just, I, I know we're making a last minute change, but how do we throw more bodies at this yeah. and get this across the finish line as quickly as possible? But it is a process, it takes time, and I think at the end of the day, taking that time allows you to build good product, and if you build good product, that is the foundation that you can build a brand and scale it on top of. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, next question I have for you is really just like, how involved do you get, and, and this will start to transition over to incubating your own products, but something that we learned at Agile Media Group, we, we're not creatives, we would not get involved in creative, and that was intentional, because like that just wasn't our strong suit. And um, I think it became an evolution where, as we did more and more campaigns, and we had all this data, there was just information asymmetry about what worked and what didn't. And so it became a business risk to us that when we didn't get involved, like a campaign could call, fall flat, and now we're very involved. And so you guys control one part of the equation, but it's not the entire equation. And to be honest, it, you almost are like function as a venture capitalist, in my opinion, where you guys do have to try to make some bets on like which companies are gonna succeed. Especially, you know, you talk about like, you do a lot of work with pre-revenue businesses. So I'm curious how you think about, I don't know, like qualifying partners so that you're not allocating a ton of resources towards something that um, might just be a short-term reality? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And, and I, I definitely see it very like through that lens, which is we're making bets early on. And so the way to really validate that, you know, you have to kind of go through a process where you're looking at the opportunity, the category that somebody wants to build a new product and brand in. And A, first see, is there something, is there white space or kind of innovation um, that a new product can be introduced that will have legs. Um, but then B, a lot of it has to do with the founding team. So just like yeah. a VC says that they're vetting you know, the founders or the founding team, like 100% true for us as well, especially in the pre-revenue days when we're gonna be investing so much time, bandwidth, energy, into right. kind of helping, helping folks 
um, bring something new into the world. Um, and so, yeah, we, we definitely are kind of looking to see whether, you know, this is going to be a good fit. Um, one of the ways we do that has been basically giving homework to, to people. That's what I was yeah. going to ask. Um, like, you which is, tell us how you're going to support like the media side of this? Or, yeah. Like, distribution? No, I mean, that, that's, not, we, that's obviously not our expertise. And actually, obviously, one of the reasons Mike came into the fold early days for Canopy is we, had, we did not have kind of the muscle to support some of the early work around brand strategy, creative, you know, management, identity development, even on the growth side. And so very lucky, you know, that, that I had worked with Mike and knew that he could go deep on some of these things. Um, and so brought, brought Mike in to help kind of lead that for Canopy. On the Dora side, you know, again, that, that's not our area of expertise, so that's not necessarily what we're vetting. But we're looking to, you know, basically see how committed and engaged a founder is and what the thought, thought process is like um, early on to really kind of bolster confidence that they're going to be able to navigate the really tough first, you know, first few um, phase of design and development um, process. So um, typically what that had looked like for pre-revenue businesses was like basically giving them prompts right. and things of like, hey, what is, you know, we, this is the information that we need to understand for your product vision and expecting them to do a little bit of homework and see what that legwork looks like to help us establish kind of a, a baseline confidence level that they're, they know they have a clear kind of line of sight into what they want to build and they have a clear line of sight into how they're going to go do it. Yeah. I think another cool part of that, about that process is though is, well one, you can definitely understand how much time somebody spent thinking about their product based on the fidelity of the, 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 right. the responses we get, but the other thing that happens that's really cool about that is some people will we'll give them the homework and they'll be like, okay, like, we'll get back to you and like, we won't hear from them for six months. And then six months goes by and now they've, they've done all the homework, right? Mm -hmm. We like, prompted them like, hey, these are the things that you need to figure out and they're going to go back to the drawing board and then they're going to come back to us, which I think is also very cool because like, it does vet the person immediately, but it also gives them the opportunity to say, okay, here's what I need to go learn in right. order to set myself up to be successful in, in launching one of these businesses. Yeah. Um, and I think to your original question, like where do the boundaries lie? And as you know, since we've launched Canopy in particular, I think we get to sit on both sides of the table now, right? right. And, um, and because we're working with pre-revenue businesses, we're having conversations with them so early that right. we're, we're like, oh, hey, do you need an introduction to a brand partner or a web design partner? How are you guys thinking through um, how you're going to resource the business as you first launch it, right? There's so much surface area for us to, you know, through osmosis and conversation, all of the clients that we've worked with to date, uh, we've learned so much from what they've done well and what they've done wrong. And, you know, we've, we've learned so much from what we've done well and what we've done wrong on the canopy side of things that we can oftentimes, like, help people navigate rapids and, like, totally. um, you know, figure out, oh, maybe this isn't the best course of action. Or did you think about that thing that... Uh, did you consider what the implications of this are going to be 12 months down the road? Or, um, or go talk to this partner, because we don't know, this but yeah. this is somebody we know, yeah. you know knows Who this knows space this really well. well. Yeah. That's what VCs do. I mean, they like yeah. talk to this investor because I don't know shit, but like, I yeah. might still be interested. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, so another question I had is just like, of uh, one, I guess, are there any hard and fast rules where if people are thinking about wanting to work with doorstep, it's like you should be at a certain point? Because I think... Pre-revenue, there's just like such a wide distribution curve of like what that could be. Yeah. It could just be like literally day one of an idea versus like 
hey, I've raised money and like have a, a fully baked concept and, and like I need to start operationalizing this. And then on top of that, what percent of like, I don't, I don't want to call them leads, but like prospective partners do you actually end up partnering with on like a percentage basis? Yeah. Well, the, the first part to that is there are no hard and fast rules, I think in a lot, in most things, but especially in kind of pre-revenue discussions um, there's no one approach. There's no one silver bullet. There's no playbook for how you bring a new product, you know, right. brand or anything to, to, to into the world. And so we don't kind of follow um, a strict set of parameters of like this is what it needs to be in order right. for you us don't to engage. Like Five million dollars in funding. No, necessarily. no, no. And we've because we've seen such a wide spectrum of of you know, how people bring their product brands into the world, right. whether that's through venture capital or not, you know, whether it's, it's, yeah, there's there's just so many different paths and doors um, somebody can take. So for us, it's, again, it's more like figuring out if there's an opportunity, finding, you know, figuring out if there's the right fit with this, you know, the founding team um, and figuring out how we can work with them if we are really excited about those two things. The reason, the reason we get to have this awesome list of partners that we've worked with is because we've prioritized um, working with founders and entrepreneurs and businesses that are going to be able to bring product to market and like build the business. Um, there is a ton of design work and development work across you know, the U.S. that gets done and never sees the light of day. And the only way, like at the end of the day, we've grown Doris Dev through word of mouth, right? Putting good work out into the world, um, being great partners to entrepreneurs, and that then begets more work for us at the end of the day. So I think that's like a big piece of the puzzle as far as vetting the right types of partners during the BD process. And I, as far as like lead conversion goes, I think it's probably pretty low, right? Like we talk to a lot. We talk to selective. a lot of people. Yeah, super selective. We got limited bandwidth. I like to to say that our acceptance rate is lower than Princeton's. Okay. Um, <laughs> what do you think that is for percentage? Um, sub 10 percent yeah yeah um but also and just to piggyback on mike's first point is you know that was a really important lens for us to be to select uh clients as well is because we have limited bandwidth we want to make sure that we're working with working on projects that we know are going to make it into the world because those then serve as billboards for work that we've done right Mm-hmm. There we go. Yeah, and the next evolution of that is putting them on trucks. That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Um, you know, another question I had is you talk about selectivity and like wanting to like, you know, be really supportive and selective with your partners. One thing I think about personally, because I wouldn't say we're an agency, but like we do probably function similar to an agency, is just like bandwidth, and I think that. The parallel I draw is you look at education, right? Like in Princeton, something that they're going to advertise pretty heavily as their teacher to student ratio. So I'm curious how you think about the team development and just sort of like, I don't know, the capacity to be able to do and make all that magic consistently in a, in a replicable way. Yeah. Yeah. I think there, well, there's, there's two aspects to it. One is, um, I guess, the types of brands that we end up working with are founders that go really deep in areas that don't that aren't product, right? They're marketing, creative, finance, operations. And so in those instances, we lean in really heavily to help with that education process. Right? The way we engage um, clients 
on the supply chain setup side is actually we're setting up a truly transparent and totally visible supply chain right. for our for our brand partners so that after we produce that first production run, we can hand the keys off to the brand partner for their for them to run their own supply chain. So through that process, there's a huge education curve uh, of actually telling them, here's what you have to do. You're going to be working with these partners. Here's the process. And for them to really kind of get their, their legs. Um, and so that is a huge part of, of, the, of the business. Um, but we also see actually an interesting, interestingly other side of it too, which is, you know, we've got this really robust manufacturing network. We've gone, you know, we've now commercialized hundreds, if not thousands of products, um, you know, to date. And we work with um, some founding teams that actually have deep product experience. Um, and they work with us because they know how hard it is and they just basically want to tap into an expert to lead that work. Right. Lead the design and development work, lead the supply chain setup work, and that and they know that they're gonna, you know, get something that sets up a robust supply chain on the other end, and they don't have to go deep on all of the work up front. Um, so actually a lot of or some of our some of our clients are actually uh, fall into that camp. So it's, it's been kind of a mix um, where there is some education, you know, component to the work that we're doing and kind of helping to teach and handhold some of the teams through that process. But there's also some folks that are just like, you guys go do your thing and, yeah. you know, hand over the keys when we're ready to run it afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think the experts that we have on the team also, like, given the nature of Doris and the relationships that we have with our partners, the people who are leading product and our leading ID, they have to be able to give our partners uh, incredible peace of mind on the work that we're executing on, which does involve, like, I, it's, it's not, I don't think it's unfair to say that the weekly calls that we have with our clients are oftentimes like a full-blown lecture, right? right. Like, our, our director of engineering is hopping on a call and going into an excruciating amount of detail of how or why this piece is coming together the way that it is. Um, and some clients eat it up and love it, and a 30-minute call turns into an hour-and-a-half-long call because questions beget more questions. Other clients are like, all right, all the words that you guys have used are going right over my head, and I trust that you guys are knocking it out of the park for me right now as right. a result of that. So it is kind of interesting. We sold $6 million our first year and did $80 million in sales last year. That's what the COO of Adventure Challenge, a longtime customer of ShipHob's, shared with ShipHob the other day. The pace of growth for Adventure Challenge has been insane, but it wasn't all positive. It started with a failed crowdfunding project. Then, investors assured them that their business would fail. They raised $0 in outside capital. And it somehow only took a few years to hit $80 million in sales. They started off fulfilling all orders themselves. They'd have U-Hauls packed with thousands of products, making endless trips from their storage unit to the post office. It was not scalable. It was definitely hurting their growth. It definitely wasn't fun. That's when ShipOb started their partnership with Adventure Challenge. By being able to focus on growing the business and product development, sales took off like a rocket ship. While Adventure Challenge initially focused on D2C sales, their popularity started driving other conversations. They started to stock several hundred smaller boutiques across the country, then Francesca's, then Kohl's. And while they're based in California and most of their customers are in the US, the word of mouth and viral videos on TikTok and Instagram started driving demand around the world. So then they started filling orders out of Canada, and then the UK, and now Australia. From a failed Kickstarter and getting $0 in outside investment on day one to over $80 million in revenue, 
Adventure Challenge has defied the odds and built a global powerhouse brand alongside their partnership with ShipBob, who's there to help you completely unlock your brand's growth. Read the entire story at shipbob.com forward slash adventure dash challenge. Do you draw any hard lines around like how many clients you take given headcount? Um, anything in terms of trying to, I don't know, make sure that you can continue to scale your business in a way that doesn't degrade experience? For sure, yeah. We, we definitely have limits on how many, how much work and how much bandwidth we can take on at any given time. Um, one of those dimensions is number of clients, but it's actually within those kind of client relationships. Sometimes it's a single kind of product that we're working on, and totally. other times it's like a huge assortment of right, product. Like we're developing products yeah. for them. Yeah, and and sometimes it's hey, we're starting at ground zero with the ideation and design work, and other times it's hey. We need help with you know shoring up our supply chain. Yeah. So there again, there isn't like a one size fits all approach. It's very much like trying to figure out what we can take on, how does it affect our bandwidth, um, and then yeah, we're we're very cognizant that we don't want to have any issues with quality. So we we are limited in how many, essentially what we call work streams, how many work streams we can take on at a given yeah. time. Is there a favorite project you guys have worked on? I think we or we, like maybe the most we, challenging, complicated that you're like yeah that that really pushed us, but it was sick. I uh, I'll put my my finger on the scale uh, just because okay. I I think it's just because it's been my baby since the beginning. It was my first like real client that I led in, in which is soft services. Soft services, yeah, um, and it, and it's it's. Uh, <laughs> It is like a unique client for Doris, right? It's not necessarily it's not like, like durable physical goods. Good. Exactly. Like, um, so I've gotten to learn a lot from them as a result too, just around like what does the process look like for developing formulations on the skincare side of things. Um, so yeah, that is that's my shout out. Justin, Justin's not going to be as heavy handed. <laughs> yeah, we've been very lucky to work with incredible founders, um, working on incredible product ideas across all these categories. So have learned so much um, and you know I guess my my favorite project and obviously this is going to sound a little bit loaded and biased has been working on Canopy right um, just because we've been able to basically pull all of the levers ourselves totally and leverage uh, a lot of the learnings um, and kind of network that we've established through the Doris dev um, process and, and pipes yeah. to so, apply for Canopy. Yeah, so let's ju- let's jump into the origin story of Canopy. I think it's really it's really an interesting move. I'm sure you have so much exposure to all of these moving parts. Um, the temptation to probably like, we, we, you know, let's get into it ourselves. Like we we've developed a lot of expertise here. We can hack this. Is probably something that's hard to resist. And so, obviously, the Canopy story is a really cool one. Um, a baby within a baby. <laughs> we're, we're an analogy. Um, but talk to me about how that uh, that uh, that idea came together. For sure. So uh, since the you know day zero of Doris, the the idea has always been that we wanted to incubate or launch our own product brand. Um, and I think we, uh, you know, with Doris, we continued to evolve and scale the business and and kind of again work with these amazing brands and learn so much through that process. Um, we were trying to figure out when and how we were going to launch our own uh, our own brand. Um, we actually started working on a bunch of product concepts that we thought were interesting back in the early days of Taurus and as early as 2018. Do you remember what some of them were? Oh man, we were looking at a lot of a lot of different things. We were looking at um, some uh, man. 
we, we looked at a, a kind of a, a bidet concept. Okay. Um, so not quite like the Hello Tushy, Tushy yeah, yeah. Um, product, but something in that category. Um, we, what we were really interested in actually was um, categories where we could take a product idea um, and kind of position, like introduce innovation around the product, but introduce it or position it within a brand, within a category that was novel. So like um, the idea of taking, um, I don't know, baby product, you know, innovation, what we've seen in baby products, but applying it for adults. Like right. is there right, a, right, right. a real kind of a novel approach we can take for introducing a new product into a different category that just position it differently. Actually, Gravity Blankets was a really good example of that, right? They took kind of this medical therapy, therapy device, which was a weighted blanket that was used for very specific applications and broadened it for a much wider uh, net uh, in kind of uh, like the home, home, home category. Um, and so that was like a good inspo for us thinking about, okay, like, were there I, ideas? I got one for you. You know crash pads for snowboarding? Like the pads, it's like boxer briefs with yeah, pads yeah. in them. Okay. You, we you need to rebrand them for adults. You know, everyone, I mean, a, a lot of other people fall, break their hip. Exactly. Yeah. The product's already there. We just need to move right. the hmm. branding over. Exactly. You know, like it's health insurance. Yeah. There we, <laughs> we go. Can talk a little bit. After. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once the cameras stop rolling, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, we'll start talking. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that that's exactly kind of kind of it. And so Canopy really came out of the efforts internally at Doris where we were. Think, noodling on ideas, and we were trying to figure out how do we go through, like obviously we knew how to design and set up a supply chain for scale, but we didn't really know how to necessarily validate it. Um, and so we had these ideas in the hopper that were just getting worked on here and there. Um, and with Canopy, that was one of, one of the ideas, which was um, our co-founder and partner, Lucas, our head of product, was really interested in humidifiers because Everybody has this experience with humidifiers where they suck. Yeah, they suck. They get mold, you know, you and ask we anybody. We stopped using our, like, Amazon bought one. Yeah, they just, they mold over, right? Everyone has And this. it's, like, sketchy when you're like, oh, like, the thing that's going to, I'm going to breathe in now has mold all over it. Yeah. Like, get that shit out of my face. Exactly. <laughs> everybody, anybody that knows what a humidifier is, because also that's a, an important yeah. part of it. Not everyone knows what totally a humidifier is. Totally, an education component. So there's an education component, but anyone that knows what a humidifier is has that experience. They all have like a, oh shit, my humidifier is gross. I right. have to clean it out once a week. I like hate this thing. There's a love-hate relationship with it because when people use it, they're using it every day for usually you know a prolonged amount of time, whether it's a winter right. season yeah. or it's you know in a baby nursery allergy for yeah. allergies, like or if you live you know in a cool climate in in Colorado. But like everybody has a shitty experience with their humidifier, and so that was kind of the first nugget where we were like, okay, maybe there's something here. Um, the other. The other kind of nugget that we kind of unpacked was Lucas's girlfriend um, was using a humidifier as a beauty hack for skin health. She was using a humidifier year round, so not just during the right. winter, you know, the winter months. And she had the ritual of breaking out vinegar and Q-tips every Sunday to clean it out so that it wouldn't mold over. And most people aren't, you know, as fastidious as that. Yeah, not me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so that was like the second nugget that we kind of leaned into, which was maybe there was something we can design or engineer that would help prevent 
mold from growing or make it way easier to clean out so that right. it wasn't this burden. Um, and so we started working on ultimately that idea at the beginning of 2019. So it was early 2019 in the winter, started kind of thinking about redesigning or re-engineering um, the humidifier to address those two pain points. And then ended up spending really 12 months, that the entire of 2019, um, going through the R&D process for what ultimately became Canopy. Yeah. Um, and it was very much a snowball of building momentum, for building sure. confidence, putting it in front of people, getting feedback, you know, garnering the confidence that we were on the right track, there was something here that kept us kind of moving the yeah. process, moving the ball down the field. Is that the first one that you guys like think to actually like put a lot of effort into? It's the first one that made it that yeah. long that that long. Right. Um, we definitely did a bunch of design work, prototype stuff, put it in front of people. And like you know, they, those ideas that just didn't have the same um, depth or traction would right. just fall to the wayside. Yeah. And there's probably there's a library now, probably of those those half baked ideas that just never made it mm -hmm. through that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, hats off to you guys. That one, like, went viral pretty quickly. Um, and and I do think you're right. It's something about the positioning, as like just re reframing it as something that like has a situational situational element to something that like should be part of your day-to-day -day was also incredibly strategic talk to me about just like the complexities with you know you talk so much about working with brands and not having like all of those elements on the team and those skill sets so how did you guys figure out putting together a team and sort of reinventing the operating model to be able to support what is you know pretty different for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I, um, so during that year of R&D, one of the things that kept resonating with people that we put this idea for a you know, best in class humidifier um, was that story. Yeah. You know, one of the elements that resonated with people was that Izzy, Lucas's girlfriend, was using it as this beauty hack for skin. Right. And um, we kind of kept kind of digging into that, and we, we saw that you know humidifiers were this thing that you know a lot of beauty experts, skin experts were promoting, um, but it wasn't like this well-known thing of connecting the dots between skin health and like essentially the the humidity around in which you're putting your skin. Um, and we thought that was really interesting. Um, and what we realized as we talked to more and more people was that there was an opportunity to really position this humidifier as a beauty tool as a skincare tool right. because of the benefits it provides for skin health. Um, and so through that process, what we did is we actually decided we wanted to go find somebody who could help lead the brand strategy and positioning piece for us to do that. Um, and so we got very lucky, you know, my co-founder uh, and you know, head of product at, at Doris, who's a co-founder of, of Canopy, he and I go deep on product and operations and supply, but not so much on the marketing or brand positioning side. Um, and so we were very lucky to, um, to meet, to get connected to our third co-founder who ultimately became our CMO, okay. um, Eric Nair, and he, he came from the beauty world. So he had deep expertise in beauty. He was an early employee of Birchbox. Okay. He went on to Walmart to incubate uh, an, a homegrown beauty brand for them there. Um, and we got connected through a mutual friend um, as an early conversation for us to just figure out 
kind of what we needed um, in with regard to like hiring for that that muscle that we didn't have on the founding team. Um, and he got really excited about this idea of positioning a humidifier as a beauty tool. Um, yeah, and Sephora, Sephora online now, right? Yeah, and then now, yeah, now we're Sephora online. We're in Blue Mercury stores. Wow. Like we're going deep into beauty. Yeah, that's not, not something that I would have uh, envisioned if you had asked me a couple years ago totally. if I was going to be building. I a know, beauty brand. I know, we're deep in the beauty conversation right now, but I do think there's one other, uh, one layer above, which is to say, humidifiers are very brand agnostic. There's not like a voracious following for any one brand of humidifiers. It's an appliance at the end of the day, right? right? And um, and everyone has a shitty experience. And everyone has a shitty experience with it. Um, and I think that there are other areas of the home, like you look at like a Vitamix, right? Like they've really made a blender sexy. Yeah, that's true. And like there are definitely some now other blender brands that have followings and stuff like that. But uh, on the humidifier side of things, it was basically like, you know, uh, Target, Amazon, or you know, where, whatever you're picking up at CVS, nobody really knows what the name of their humidifier is. They know it as, oh, I have the blue teardrop, right? Like, that's about it. They describe it. They don't yeah, know yeah, what yeah, the brand yeah. is. So having that opportunity and then this additional layer of positioning, I think those two things combined, and then also going, taking it one step further, unlocking baby for us was a big piece of the puzzle as well. And I think we always had... I think that's why my sister got it. They, first oh place. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think for that sure. those our customer bases like they they very firmly fit in one or both of those circles of like right. I'm a skincare enthusiast or I'm a newer expecting parent. Um, so having that additional layer in addition to the skincare beauty thing and the uh, you know there's not another brand or there's not another humidifier that people have this like reverence towards it created a little bit of a perfect storm for us to be able to step out into the market and actually give this unique perspective and like build a brand around this product um, which is super interesting and unique um, yeah. yeah yeah and actually just to talk a little bit about that for a second the original brand strategy, you know, we realized we were creating this best-in-class humidifier. It addressed pain points around, you know, mold growth and easy maintenance, and we incorporated an aroma diffuser and made it, you know, beautiful so that it was you were proud for it to sit on your nightstand. We knew that there was already this kind of core target audience we can go after, which were humidifier users, because we were going to put a best-in-class version of that product in front of them. The harder place to start was telling the story, connecting the dots between a humidifier and skin health. Right. And so our brand strategy out of the gate was always really focus on establishing ourselves as this beauty skincare tool where Canopy was providing these functional benefits for skin health. And then from there, once we've established our footing in beauty, we can kind of move down the ranks where we could go after baby as a secondary kind of priority, and then ultimately get to the home health and hygiene kind of audience. Um, but we didn't have to start there. We wanted to start with kind of the hardest yeah, story yeah, yeah. to tell first, and then it would be a kind of a waterfall approach. Yeah, it's so interesting what you said about there not being like any brand loyalty in that category. I'm sure as you think about other categories too, that's probably something that um, you'll index heavily on because it's like you own, you guys own that space in my opinion. I don't know what mine mine's some like generic random for sure. Yeah, yeah. If you it's ask generic it, you and then it's dicing. Need, need a coupon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, is is Katie enjoying her experience? Yeah, no, she's loving it. I yeah. mean, listen, we're on set, right? The people on the set were saying they love theirs too. So yeah, you great. guys have built a great product. Awesome. Um, how has Doris Dev changed in the post canopy era? That's a great question. That is a great question. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I... You guys have, like, your own testing ground, I think, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think on the on the brand side of things, right, we've had to hire branding agencies and web dev shops and performance marketing agencies and creatives to help us execute um, kind of across the board for, like, putting all right. the pieces together on the brand side of things. Um, you know, I've had conversations with every single Shopify plugin that exists. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, so I, I think as a result, Justin Lucas and I in particular, who are leading engagements on the doorstep side of things, have a very well-rounded perspective now that um, has been fleshed out more thoroughly by Canopy. It's not that we didn't have perspective on it before, it's just now we know, right? We've pulled the levers. Um, so I think that is, ultimately I think it's a really big win. Like, it's not uncommon for me to like hop on a call with a client to be like, let's take a look at your PDP. Like right. they're like, hey, can we're, we're trying to like do some redesign work? Can can we get your perspective on that? And it's like, I don't know that in a pre canopy time, Doris would be like, yeah, for sure, let's hop on and jam out about the, your PDP structure right, right, right. and your CTAs and uh, what plugins you should be trying out or yeah. those types of things. And it, and it's definitely helped just kind of bring great perspective. Yeah, right. on like both empathy. sides. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. like as a brand owner now, we kind of understand better some of the pain points of really what it means to like be scrappy, be cost you know, efficient, um, how do we commercialize this with the best intent for the business and not maybe the best intent or you know, best decision for what a designer wants. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, very much helped kind of bring empathy into the process um, and understanding. Yeah, and um, you know, Canopy's grown a ton. What do you think's next for Canopy? Oh, man, so much. Yeah. Um, there's so much room for growth on the Canopy front. I mean, we're, we're introducing new products. We're expanding our footprint, both from a retail distribution perspective um, and just overall kind of market perspective. Right. Um, and I'm assuming another evolution for the business. Yeah. And like a whole other reinvention. So I'm excited to see how that plays out. Yeah. And, and what's been really nice, too, is because we have a really well-toned kind of product team, Right. that we can tap into, uh, a la Doris Dev. Right. We have been very responsive as well to basically hearing customer feedback from the canopy front and being able to react to that. Right. Um, a really good example of that is actually the second product we introduced was a waterless aroma diffuser. Okay. Um, and the reason we did that is we were getting really positive feedback from the aroma diffuser feature in the humidifier. Mm, People sense. loved the scent. They wanted to basically just focus on that aspect for you know, for uh, their desk, for their desk, home, right? for their bathroom, for whatever. And so we ended up essentially designing and creating that um, aroma diffuser product really quickly um, in response to a lot of the positive feedback we were getting. Yeah, and I think another piece of the puzzle that we haven't really touched on too is there is a subscription model tied into Canopy. Yeah, um, right. And I mean, I think it's kind of blown our minds a little bit, like how, what the subscription attachment rate is, like the type of relationship we're it's then like able a to build. Company. Yeah, yeah, so and, yeah sure. we're about to cross sixty k. Um, in the near future on the subscriber side of things, yeah. which gives us a really unique and interesting opportunity too, right? We have people from cohort number one, October 2020, that are still actively subscribed to their filter, right? Yeah, and 
So the as we grow the business, we already have this like engaged user base who's interfacing with their Canopy every day already as part of their nightly skincare routine, who is receiving a package from Canopy every six or twelve weeks and putting a new filter in. Um, and the goal is like, okay, where can I, where else can we expand inside the home and like continue to build a relationship like that where there is a subscription component attached. Um, and yeah. I think the so Repur- long as you're doing purchasables or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's just ongoing touch points. Totally. Right? The, the more service area, yeah, so many, so many benefits. Yeah, yeah we get sure. we get to partner with a bunch of interesting brands as a result of the subscription model that we have through yeah. the aroma component, um, which also gives us you know. There's beyond skincare, right? There's all these other benefits of using a humidifier, hair health, right? We've partnered right. with Pros. We partnered with the oh, Sill. Pros, yeah, yeah. That's a cool one. We partnered with the Sill because the Sil. plants, like plant moms, love yeah. they love plant humidity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it really like there's something so cool about the humidifier as one, it's super non-offensive to other brands. People aren't like, oh, are you going to buy my conditioner or a humidifier like nobody's really making that purchasing decision and it gives us the opportunity to partner up with brands that are doing really cool things in adjacent spaces that the humidifier can touch um and your your ecosystem builders at this point were like so obviously you've helped a lot of brands but a lot of them have been where canopy is and can help like reciprocate essentially a lot of like, oh, you need to talk to this buyer, you need to talk to so-and-so and like, you know, talk through the challenges that they had, which I think is so interesting. For sure. As like a competitive advantage that honestly most other brands just don't get. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and through the Doris network, we've been able to like partner with all these brands in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's awesome. Right, so like social collabs and product giveaways and like, yes. Building our email list early on. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Boom. All right, so I want to switch gears here uh, and talk about factory quality. So mm. it's very, very different pursuit. Um, so why don't you uh, take us through the genesis of that? Yeah, um, so factory quality came about actually very um, opportunistically. Um, we got approached by a, a, a team, a startup team that was working on supply chain software um, that approached the, the Doris team, uh, Lucas and, and myself, to basically just help provide um, guidance on, on the product that they were building. Um, and so we were advising them for about a year, and through that period, um, and actually going all the way back through my entire kind of uh, career in product and supply chain, um, one of the kind of learnings or things that I uh, realized through that entire process was that there was really no digital platform of record for this one thing that was a common thread through every supply chain work that we did, which was quality assurance. There was no platform or system of record where as a brand you can house and treat as the one place that stored all of your quality control uh, information. And what does that act like functionally for people who like don't really know what that involves? You just like demystify that process. Like, what sort of data points are even in there? Yeah. So, I mean, through the supply chain setup process, you're engaging a factory partner, a contract manufacturer, and you're entrusting that they're going to follow your specs and they're going to produce the product exactly to your to how you want it. Right. Um, and so, a lot of quality control work goes into essentially ensuring that your manufacturing processes and your partners are are doing everything they can. To, to maintain those uh, to maintain those specs, yeah. Um, and so there's work, all the you know, uh, there's a range of work that goes into setting up quality control practices, 
um, from vetting, you know, factory partners on the front end when you're selecting right. who to work with, all the way through kind of production oversight. So that's doing inspections during the production uh, process to make sure you have visibility into what's going on, right, right, right. to doing inspections at the end of the line before goods get loaded into a container, which is basically to look at goods and, and basically run through a, a bunch of tests visual, performance, whatever, to make sure that they adhere to the specs that you kind of set set forth for the manufacturing partner. Yeah. Um, and so all of that work that happens around quality control, there hasn't really been a digital platform of record to basically serve as the source of truth for all of the work that happens. Right. Um, and so uh, we, we got connected to this team that came out of Y Combinator that was working on a supply chain software product um, we were advising them for about a year and basically pitched them on this concept um, through that process, which was, hey, nobody's focused on building this digital-first source of truth for quality control. Right. Um, I we, remember McMaster, all the like certs and stuff that yeah, we had. Yeah, of course. Was, like, and how did, do you remember how you dealt with it at McMaster? We had like a whole separate CX flow of like, oh, I forget, like Ross Right. Yeah, all everything. All the, yeah, all of these like, different like, compliance Okay, tests. like because it went into like um, you know Boeing and SpaceX, they needed to know all the way back, trace those ingredients and yeah. materials to the the OEM. Yeah, exactly. So and and like same with retailers, so right? For like product safety compliance, right. like Target, Walmart, all of the retailers have the similar requirements, which is to make sure that you know the products that are being made are to the spec and standards of what right. is safe. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of companies just don't have um, the infrastructure set up to support the activities that need to happen. Totally. For that process, I mean, or even from audit, like literally hired a, a, like a chemist. I'm yeah. pretty Sure. Yeah, you know, for, of, like, I'm sure. Because all the sure. crazy regulations that they have to adhere to. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and so the idea was, hey, you know, we've seen this at Doris. We've got a bunch of um, you know brand partners that don't have a digital system of record for this. You guys are building this software. We've got operational basically depth to do right. the work on the back end, and we basically pitched the idea of creating what ultimately became factored quality, which was a source of truth and a managed service platform for all of the quality control work that goes into setting up a supply chain for scale. And so is it something that can be retrofitted against someone's pre-existing supply chain? Like, how does it functionally, if you're a brand that's like, oh, that sounds sick, like, how do I, what's next? How does it work uh, functionally? Yeah, yeah, so it's a really dynamic platform. So it can either serve as um, your single kind of um, anchor for all of the work that goes into supply chain oversight. So meaning a brand logs into a platform, they can book a factory audit or a product inspection directly from the platform, yeah. and then all of the data flows into the platform so they have visibility into everything that's going on. But for brands, you know, other brands that have established uh, supply chains and quality control practices or resources in place, it can serve as essentially either the source of truth for, for them because they don't have a digital version of all of the work or storage for what's going on, or a dynamic resource where, you know, they might have quality control, uh, you know, an inspector or a quality lead on the ground in one place, but if right. they've got a global supply chain, they need to replicate that mm, all over right. the world. Yeah. And we've got, Factor Quality has a global footprint all over the world to support basically dynamic needs for wherever those inspections are needed. If, if you're a brand that doesn't have internal quality control, you haven't already figured that out, Factor Quality has a managed services component that can step in and really, like, 
help you flesh that out in a ton of detail, set you up for success, so that way you can just come to the platform. It can be very self-serve moving forward, but there's always going to be people there that can support with you know new product launches, et cetera, getting the proper uh, controls in place yeah. so that you can scale the business. Is it, is, yeah. is it like SaaS in terms of like how a, a, a brand would think about working with you? It's it's managed services. Yeah. So the best comp is like a flexport for quality control. Got yeah. it. So there is a SaaS, there's a, a, a digital platform, but then there's also humans in the back end totally. doing the work. Got yep. it. Cool. Okay. Uh, last question uh, on this stop is sort of an uh, easy question to ask, hard one to answer probably, but. What do you, what do you want for Doorstep? Um, I personally have a hard time trying to like, you know, brand. A lot of the brand founders make, oh, we want to, we want to recreate uh, the food industry, the beverage industry. This is such a unique sort of business <laughs> model that you're operating on. Um, what's your hope for Doorstep? So, Doorstep has been such an interesting evolution. Since since the beginning, um, but ultimately, kind of the vision for where we're heading hasn't change too much, which is to be a um, an ecosystem for building, launching, scaling product businesses, um, working with best-in-class founders and brands to bring those product ideas to life, but also being able to leverage that um, kind of machine to, to incubate uh, owned product brands as well, um, like Canopy. Um, and so as we continue to build out that, that kind of machine and ecosystem, um, my hope is that we continue to work with best-in-class um, brands that help really tone the muscle, um, but we also uh, are able to leverage what we're building to incubate more canopies. Do you ever see uh, an accelerator uh, element to door stuff? <sighs> yeah, you know, we've been, we've been, we've talked about different ways to kind of accelerate that vision, which is like, hey, is there an accelerator component like to this? Is there a venture component to this? I think those are all uh, accretive to the vision, um, but we're, we've been very careful, mindful of how we build the thing because we've never, you know, Doris has never raised outside capital. Right. Um, and so I think we're very, and we've been involved with businesses that have raised outside capital to move really quickly. Um, and we just don't want to put ourselves in a precarious position um, by doing something too early or putting us in the wrong direction yeah. too early. Too early. Um, and so we're okay moving a little bit more slowly. Cool. All right, guys, so our next stop on this route is a game we call The Hot Box, probably <laughs> named after the set design. Um, so it's a sort of a riff on the hot seat, and it's gonna be a game of this or that question. So like, I'm gonna say, a or B, and without thinking too much, I'm gonna ask that each of you respond um, which one you identify most with. Cool. So Mike will start, you'll, you'll be the first response, mm -hmm. Justin, you'll be second. Great. And um, let me just get him ready here. <laughs> All right, you guys ready for the hot box? Oh yeah. All right, first question, cold plunge or hot tub? Cold plunge. Hot tub. Beach house or ski house? Beach house. Ski house. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Sunset. D2C or DTC? D2C. <laughs> DTC. <laughs> Neat or messy? Uh, messy. Uh, messy. Corgi or golden retriever? Corgi. Ooh, golden retriever. Winter or summer? Winter. Winter. Wow. Tennis or golf? Golf. Tennis. Pineapple pizza or candy corn? 
Neither. Neither. <laughs> yeah. She's oh my god. god. The game. <laughs> Fine. Candy corn. Oh. oh I don't know. Uh, pineapple pizza. <laughs> oh, Live shit. music Sorry. or DJ? Live music. Live music. Live in space or underwater? Space. <sighs> space. Fight one horse-sized duck or a thousand duck-sized horses. <laughs> I've thought about this a lot. It's a thousand <laughs> duck-sized horses. Yeah, thousand ducks. Sweet snacks or salty snacks? Uh, salty. Salty. Call, text, or audio notes? Ooh, text. Te- text. Reading or writing? Uh, writing. Writing. Work remote or work on-site? On-site. Remote. Do laundry or do the dishes? Dishes. Dishes. Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok? Instagram. LinkedIn. <laughs> Dancing or people watching? Dancing. Dancing. Cocktails or beers? Cocktails. Cocktails. Feel too hot or too cold? Too cold. Too cold. You have one animal to protect you against zombies, gorilla, or grizzly bear? Grizzly bear for grizzly sure. Grizzly bear for yeah, sure. No, no doubt. Give up bread or give up cheese? Ooh. Uh, give up cheese. Yeah, same. Air guitar or air drums? Air drums. Air guitar. Board games or video games? That's uh, both. Yeah. You gotta pick one. Uh, all right, fine, board games. Video games. Fifty dollars on red or black? Black. Red. Start early or leave late? Leave, leave late. late. Yeah, me too. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Nonfiction. Where do you want to go next? Asia or Europe? Asia. Asia. It's been a while. Yeah. Rich and famous or rich and anonymous? Rich and anonymous. Same. Playlists or podcasts? Podcasts. Playlists. Cardio or weights? Cardio. Cardio. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Waffles. Man, I can't wait to see your guys' Venn diagram. Overlap. <laughs> um, speak to animals or speak ten languages? Ten languages. Ten languages. Mm-hmm. I feel like technology is going to get to the point where yeah. we can have translators. That's animals true. is pretty cool. Fact, right? <laughs> Tech Netflix, get there too. Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. Netflix. Telepathy or teleportation? Teleportation. Teleportation. Trucks or billboards? Trucks. Trucks. There we go. <sighs> Receive good news first or bad news first? Bad news first. Bad news first. All right, well, the bad news is we've come to the end of our oh, show. Oh, so man. we're at our final stop, yeah. guys. This was a lot of fun. Very unique relative to the other guests that we've had on. So thank you guys for joining me. Um, Want to give you guys a chance to plug where people can learn more, where they can find you guys personally, um, where they can contact you. Yeah. For me, it's uh, LinkedIn. So okay. Justin Seidenfeld on LinkedIn. Hit me up. Slide into those DMs. Yeah. DorisDev.com, you can learn more about Doris, GetCanopy.co, learn more about Canopy. Mike at DorisDev.com, if you want to shoot us an email. Also, Mike DeSantis on LinkedIn. And FactoredQuality.com. Yeah. There you go. Got All a right. lot of U- URLs. Got yeah. a lot of URLs. Yeah. That's it. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. You guys crushed. Good job, man.